Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Support for Alaist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So great to have you with us, as you just heard Suzanne say. California Science Center with a very exciting project going on tonight. We'll get into details of that momentarily. But also want to let you know what's coming up later this hour. We'll talk with one of our candidates for Los Angeles County District Attorney, a deputy DA, prosecutor with some very high-profile cases. John McKinney will be with us in studio to talk about his candidacy. Also on tap today, we're going to be uh, taking a look at that overpass that's uh, being constructed over the 101 Ventura Freeway in Agoura Hills at Liberty Canyon Road. That's to enable mountain lions and other wildlife who see their territory constricted in the Santa Monica Mountains able to pass over the freeway and be able to find larger areas to hunt and to mate and generally better the health of those species which are constrained because of of the freeway. We'll talk with our Jacob Margolis who's actually been out there and looked at one of the challenges that the species are going to have and that is the noise and the light from the freeway and some of the mitigation that the designers of the bridge are are building into it to try and deal with that. But we begin with the very exciting project of the California Science Center and Exposition Park to put the Space Shuttle Endeavor in a vertical position into its permanent display case. And uh, joining us to talk about that space where the Endeavor is going to be is Jeffrey Rudolph, President and CEO of the California Science Center. Jeffrey, so good to have you back with us. Um, let's talk about what's planned tonight. This sounds like a huge undertaking. It is. Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, tonight, we're doing the final step in our Gopher Stack operation to create the world's only uh, ready-to-launch space shuttle of all real hardware. And what's involved in, in lifting it and placing it in inside this um, exhibition space? Well, all the steps we've taken already and to move it and get it ready, and then over the weekend, we attached the lifting sling which is a piece of hardware that was used on every shuttle down at kennedy space center to attach the orbiter to the external tank and we were fortunate that nasa uh, gave that to us they didn't need it anymore and we're using that tonight uh, to lift endeavor with a two two cranes but the one is a huge 450 foot crane the smaller crane lifts the tail until we're well off the ground and then we go vertical lifted over the wall of the building and into the, the partially constructed Samuel Ocean Air and Space Center and uh, attach it to the external tank. 450-foot crane. That's going to be visible all over the area. So you've got that plane in uh, that crane in place. Are you expecting crowds to come out tonight to see this procedure? 
we really are not expecting large crowds. It's, the site is so constrained by construction and the crane operation that there's few places people can view it there. We are going to stream it live on the Science Center's YouTube, and we've invited all of the media to come. And so uh, watching it on television or on the um, live stream was probably the best way to see it. And how long is this process going to take? It will be hours. Uh, our crew, which is an amazing group of people that worked on all the space shuttles and have come out for the last few months from Florida every week to work on this, tell us that even in the vehicle assembly building at Kennedy Space Center, an indoor space with everything built in and ready to go, it would take anywhere from four to 24 hours to do this, just depending on how everything goes. Everything's very fragile, very sensitive. Uh, we add the element of wind, which is our biggest concern that We've got a big glider, essentially, the space shuttle is, um, lifted 300 feet up in the air on a crane. Wind would be a major issue. And so there, if there is wind that obviously is not expected this time, but if something happened, you would be able to scrap the mission, so to speak, and have a no-go and do it another day? Exactly. You know, when they launched space shuttles, um, everything was said no earlier than, and they had a launch window. And actually, about half the shuttle missions didn't launch in the orig original launch window. So if anything's wrong, whether it's the wind or anybody on the team feeling uncomfortable with anything about the lift safety for both the, the Endeavor and for the people involved, we will push it back a, another night. We're talking with Jeffrey Rudolph, who's the president and CEO of the California Science Center, about the ongoing project to put the space shuttle Endeavor inside the Samuel Ocean Science Center in vertical position uh, so that it can be uh, uh, an attraction for people to come and get a sense of the scale of uh, the space shuttle. Approximately how many people are involved in the project that starts tonight? Uh, probably about 50 people um between the crane operators the the shuttle experts and uh even down to the point of having the the scaffold crew is all there because uh if any of the scaffolding happens to be in the way which can happen then they'll go up and run up the scaffolding and uh, move things um it's it's a very complex process and as i said we're doing it with scaffolding and a crane as opposed to doing in a building which was designed for the purpose. And once uh, the the lift of this um, is successfully done, what follows in the way of maneuvering it into the exact position it needs to be? Well, it's actually, a, a it, they lift and then lower it into position and then very, very carefully and slowly um, do what's called capturing it. There are three attach points that the endeavor attaches to the external tank same as it was for launch and they have to get in there those attach points are very fragile the shuttle itself is very fragile around those attach points so come in extremely slowly like um i'm going to say inch by inch but probably slower than that and uh capture it and then once that's done then um attach all the bolts and, and all the attach points and, and tighten it down. And this is, so it's all part of the very same procedure, part of this hour-long process? It is, and we're really following the same procedures that were used um, on all the shuttles. We're, we're using real hardware. The whole stack is all real. Everything, the hardware we're using to attach it is the same that was used on launch, with the exception that all of them have pyrotechnics or explosives 
which we have not put in. And what happens then with the the Science Center, uh, this gallery that's devoted to Endeavor, once you have it into place, then that's an ongoing construction project for the building? Yeah, then we've got the building is about half done. We could not put the shuttle stack in after the building was done. It's just simply too big. So once Endeavor is added to the stack and it's all done, we will essentially build a big box around it to protect it during the rest of construction and build the rest of the building above and around it. Um, taking you know some time to do that. It will be a, a few years now to do that and install all the uh, exhibits. We've got about 100 other aircraft and spacecraft going into the Simulation Air and Space Center. We've got about 100 hands-on exhibits explaining the science and engineering behind flight through the atmosphere and into space. And all that will go in before we open to the public with a grand opening. Wow. And so it, is this going to be then years before people are going to be able to to see the space shuttle in the vertical position? I mean, once it's blocked by the construction, closing it in? It, it will be a few years. So this is um, this is it for a few years. The, I, I will say that probably after it's in, there'll be a couple of weeks where you can get a pretty good view of it from the surrounding area. You can mm -hmm. see the external tank as you drive down the Harbor Freeway right now. <laughs> and, uh, pretty, Be careful pretty, as you drive down. Right? Yeah, don't don't take. I, I've had too many people send me pictures, and I say, don't do that while you're driving. Yeah, Jeffrey, thank you so much for talking with us about uh, this remarkable project. A very exciting time for Southern Californians and for the California Science Center. We appreciate it. Thank you. President and CEO of the Science Center, Jeffrey Rudolph, joining us 10 o'clock when that operation begins tonight with that 450-foot crane. You're listening to Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Coming up, it's a candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney. We've invited, invited all 12 of them, including uh, the incumbent DA, George Gascon, who's running for re-election. Uh, today, we'll be talking with John McKinney, who's a deputy district attorney and prosecuted some very high-profile cases as part of his work in the Major Crimes Unit. We'll talk with him when we come back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. 
So glad to have you with us. You know, I think one of the best services that we can perform during election time is letting you hear from the candidates for public office, letting you hear the pros and cons of the ballot measures that you'll be deciding. And this has been great to have each of the candidates come in for Los Angeles County District Attorney. They all get the same amount of time. We ask uh, most of the questions are pretty much the same, but there are others that are based on their specific experiences that we want to bring out. And we're very pleased to have with us today John McKinney, Deputy District Attorney for Los Angeles County. He's been with the department for nearly 25 years as a prosecutor. He spent over a decade in the elite major crime division uh, and is deputy in charge of the East L.A. office of the district attorney's office. John McKinney, good to have you with us. Good morning, Larry. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. I was reading you came to uh, Southern California to go to UCLA Law. That's what brought you here from New Jersey? That's right. One of the greatest law schools in the country. And you decided you liked it so much, you decided... (laughs) to uh, practice here. Uh, Briefly share with us your evolution as a prosecutor in the DA's office, because I know you've worked in a number of divisions. Right. Like most DAs, uh, I started off at the bottom rung of the ladder, prosecuting misdemeanor crimes throughout the county of Los Angeles. I distinguished myself doing that and quickly moved on to very serious sexual assault cases um, while assigned to the Compton area, I prosecuted um, sexual assault, domestic violence, child abuse. I spent a year in the drug court, which was very enlightening uh, and I think pretty relevant now. I spent a year in the Compton Juvenile Court before moving on to do general felonies. Uh, Had a great deal of success. Got promoted into the hardcore gang division where I started to prosecute a heavy dose of murder cases. And then from there into the major crimes division, where I spent 10 years prosecuting some of the biggest headline-grabbing cases in Los Angeles County, including most recently the death of rapper and Grammy Award-winning artist Nipsey Hussle. And for the last year, I've been running a courthouse in East L.A. on behalf of the DA's office. In that courthouse, we focus exclusively on misdemeanor crimes, which are also very important. Well, and and we're going to get to how misdemeanors are handled by the DA's office, but what convinced you that you wanted to run for this office? Well, it really starts with my my upbringing. Um, I was born in northern New Jersey in a low-income, high-crime neighborhood, and um, unfortunately, I lost my mother when I was two years old, my father when I was five years old. I was raised by my eldest sister, who raised me and five children by herself. She really is the star of my own story. Uh, But she raised me during the worst part of the crack cocaine epidemic. So I was immersed in a criminal environment as a young man and saw it play out both on the criminality side and the victimization side. I saw our local police departments become more combat ready and more aggressive in the way they policed our neighborhoods. I didn't know it then, but that was a classroom really for me for what I would be doing later in life. When I was in that environment, I never dreamed that I would go on to become a lawyer, let alone attend one of the best law schools in the country, and then become a prosecutor enforcing the law. So um, that is the backstory for how I came to the district attorney's office, and I've used that insight and that education, that real lived experience has helped do the job the way I've done it over the years, which I think is a fair, proportional, and balanced way. And with all of that education, the personal and the professional, 
all of that preparation, I think, has brought me to a point where I'm ready to lead the office and can lead it in a way that's different from recent district attorneys. What is your critique of of the current DA? Well, I think the current DA is a fish out of water. Um, He doesn't have the background training and experience to be a prosecutor. His background is in policing and police administration. And he was given the opportunity to become a district attorney of a smaller office up in San Francisco that he took. Um, Some say he didn't do a very good job there. Uh, But whatever the case, he did come down to L.A. and win an election fairly and squarely. But I think his lack of experience, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about having 10,000 hours to develop expertise. He never practiced law a day in his life. And now he's running the largest local prosecuting agency in the country. And so the mistakes that I believe he has made is a reflection of the fact that he was never really prepared for the job in the first place. So these mistakes that you see him making, is this in policies and how they're implemented, or is is it in the leadership of personnel in the department? Really both. Both. Let me take them one at a time. Um, I'm really surprised that he didn't present as a good leader because he had leadership experience both at the L.A. Police Department. Where he was a top official. Right. Mesa, Arizona, he was chief, chief of the San Francisco Police Department. When he came to L.A. and um, ran for D.A., he had some very negative things to say about the men and women who would be carrying out his vision if he should win. And he did win. And you would have thought, okay, after winning, he would introduce himself Uh, to the office, that he would explain uh, what his vision is, and then he would seek input from the men and women in the office uh, about how he could help effectuate that vision. He never did any of that. It's three years into his um, tenure as DA, and he still hasn't really properly talked to the men and women he expects to go into court every day and, and strive toward his goal. So Poor leadership, poor management. Everybody knows the DA's office is woefully understaffed. He can't hire people. And then on the policy side, I think he just came in and very simplistically moved all the levers to one side, to a very extreme blanket one-size-fits-all policies that we know don't work in the criminal justice system. He's really tipped things too far in, in one direction. And what we need now is a correction. We need balance and proportionality. We're talking with John McKinney, Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney running for DA of L.A. County. Uh, he's been with the department for nearly 25 years as a prosecutor. Uh, John, let's let's talk about the policy issues here. And let's take, first of all, because you mentioned you worked in the misdemeanors uh, area uh, in East L.A. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So let's talk about misdemeanors because... Uh, Uh, This is an area where so-called quality-of-life crimes have not really been prosecuted by the department. If you were elected DA, what would you do with those crimes? Well, first of all, I would not nullify the law. (laughs) One of the things that Mr. Gascon did on his first day in office is he identified over a dozen misdemeanor crimes that we would no longer prosecute. Things like uh, making criminal threats, resisting arrests, trespassing. Uh, loitering for the purpose of committing other crimes. Uh, We have to, a a DA has to have great fidelity to the law and enforce the law. Now, it has to be done in a reasonable way. And with misdemeanors, you know, we're not looking to incarcerate people for violating our misdemeanor laws unless 
they keep committing the same crime over and over and over again, showing that they're not amenable to non-incarceral um, remedies or rehabilitation efforts. So, uh, you know, I believe in the broken windows theory of policing. I do believe that if you don't take care of the small things, they tend to fester and grow and become larger problems. I've se- I saw it growing up in my own neighborhood. So I do think we have to take those crimes seriously. Uh, again, not to the point of disrupting someone's life, but there has to be accountability. Uh, let's talk about uh, the prosecution of juveniles and the question of whether juveniles who commit particularly heinous crimes, whether there should be consideration of prosecuting some of those in adult court. What's your view of that? Well, my view is, and I, and I hope people really uh, take a moment to listen to what I'm about to say and understand this. Our juvenile system is not a criminal system. It was never designed to prosecute um, hardcore criminal acts or hardcore antisocial individuals, whether they be 15, 16, or 17. It has its limitations. It was really designed for young people who steal bikes, who fight at school, who steal things from local stores. It wasn't designed for the hardcore, say, gang member who carries guns and takes people's lives. A 16-year-old or 17-year-old who commits very serious crimes needs to at least be considered for prosecution in a criminal court simply because the juvenile system is not capable of helping that person or helping society. Uh, So, you know, I do support that there are cases, however rare, where a 16 or 17-year-old who commits very serious acts of sexual assaults or or killings uh, should put before a juvenile court judge who ultimately makes the decision. The DA doesn't make the decision, but the DA has to start the process. And I think that our current DA has, in a sense, usurped the power of our juvenile judges from making those considerations because he won't raise the question in front of them. As DA, I would in the appropriate cases. We're talking with John McKinney, Deputy District Attorney at L.A. County and candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney. Let's talk about Proposition 47. And with property crimes, it has a $950 threshold below which uh, crimes are, are not felonies and um, comparatively rare prosecution takes place. Do you think Proposition 47 should be modified either in, in what the financial threshold is or in any other way? Yes, Proposition 47 should be modified in a couple of different ways. And it's not because of the $950 threshold. Frankly, that's not the problem at all. On the theft side of Prop 47, The problem is it took away prosecutors' ability to prosecute repeat offenders at a higher level than misdemeanors. So under the old law, before Prop 47, if someone accumulated three or four petty theft convictions, prosecutors could then charge the next one as a felony. Under Prop 47, a person can rack up 100 misdemeanor convictions for theft, and the next one will always be a misdemeanor if it's below the threshold. On the drug side, though, is where Prop 47 has really done a lot of damage, because before Prop 47, we had relatively effective uh, felony drug treatment courts. I said I worked in one when I was in Compton. I saw people come in hardcore addicted to drugs. Nine months later, sometimes 15 months later, they walk out sober. 
and ready to reenter society. Well, Prop 47 reduced all drug possession and use crimes to misdemeanors. And when we did that with Prop 47, we took away the time that the courts had to foster drug treatment. Uh, under current law, the courts only have about six months to run someone through a treatment program, and that's not realistic. So I think Prop 47 may have been well-intentioned. It was designed to reduce the amount of incarceration in our jails and prisons, and in some sense it did that. But the trade-off was we now have higher levels of drug addiction and a, and a, a tsunami of thefts taking place in our community. We're talking with John McKinney, candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney, Deputy DA with the department. Uh, the death penalty, we haven't had an execution in California in, in probably getting close to 20 years. Um, is Are there cases you would consider prosecuting as death penalty cases? I, I wouldn't have a choice because the death penalty is the law of the state of California. Um, and you're right, we haven't had an execution in California since 2006. We may never have another execution in the state of California. But the people have voted uh, several times now to keep the death penalty as an option. And it was last on the ballot, I, I think it's probably getting close to seven or eight years ago. And not only did people vote to keep it, and these are the same people who voted for Prop 47, by the way. Not only did they vote to keep the death penalty, but they voted to try to speed it up and make it more efficient. Um, look, I think that there is a place in a civilized society for a punishment beyond life without parole. There's real evil in this world, and although it doesn't often get publicized, we see it in our courts. I mean, devastating cases of sadistic acts of murder against children, uh, cold-blooded killings of police officers, witnesses. We don't have a criminal justice system if we don't have witnesses. Uh, so uh, the people have decided that they wanted that as an option. God forbid there's a mass shooting that kills dozens of people and we don't have a way to address it. Um, and finally, I want to ask you about prosecution of law enforcement officers accused of um, uh, committing crime in the use of, of a weapon. Um, there have been many, many more prosecutions of officers under those charges under D.A. Gascon than under his predecessors. Do you see that as a positive development or not? Well, I can't say for sure because I'm not involved in those cases and don't know the particular facts of those cases. Uh, but I will say this. Look, I have a great deal of respect for law enforcement officers. I've worked with them for over 25 years. I think well beyond by and large, they do a very good job under very tough circumstances. But having a badge is not a defense to a crime. Uh, if I'm so lucky to become the DA, we will have one standard of justice that applies to everyone. And I think good law enforcement officers accept that. Uh, to the extent that the current DA has filed more cases, uh, it may be that there are more fileable cases happening, or it may be that he has modified the standard for charging police officers in the sense that he's lowered it. I know he's taken a number of these cases to trial and he's lost them. I think he's about to have one big case that he took to the grand jury thrown out. Uh, some say that whenever the current DA gets in some political hot water, for example, by leaving a 26-year-old child molester in a juvenile facility where there are other children, 
he will then turn around and file a case against a police officer to, to distract people from that mistake. We're out of time, but I wanted to just give you a quick, like, 20-second close to raise the points with our listeners. Why do you think they should vote for you for DA? Well, listen, in the 170-year history of the DA's office, there's never been an African-American male given the keys to the system. Uh, I am a black man, but being black isn't really why I think people should uh, consider me. It's because I had a certain experience as a black man growing up in the inner city, uh, immersed in crime, uh, developed great empathy, not just because of the loss of my parents, but because of what I saw crime do to the people around me. I have the experience. 25 years is a long time. And, uh, yeah, people should go to my website where they can learn more about me. Thank you very much. We appreciate you being with us. John McKinney, thank you. Thank you. Candidate for District Attorney of Los Angeles County. Once again, we've invited all 12 of the candidates to join us individually to talk about why they're running, what their views are, and some of the major issues in criminal justice today. And we'll keep going with that in the days to come. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3 coming up, our weekly Monday Southern California history segment. It's on the arrival of filmmakers to Hollywood in Southern California around the turn of the century. We'll talk about about what brought the business here when we come back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LA's 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Every Monday we get to talk Southern California history. Today it's the history of the film business making its way to Hollywood. The Oscars, of course, coming up in just a few weeks. So we thought a perfect opportunity to look at the history of Hollywood entertainment. Joining us from Chapman University, Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies, Emily Carmen. Professor, thank you for joining us. Good to have you back. And also returning to the program is Sam Wasson, film historian and author of Hollywood, The Oral History. Sam, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, let's get right into this. Um, Sam, let me ask you about the the sort of what attracted the earliest filmmakers to to Los Angeles. The assumption is it's really the weather that drove the business. How much of that was the lure? Um, some of it, but really it's a more exciting story. These were filmmakers on the run. Um, from the patent holders who own the patents, not to the cameras, 
but to various ancillary technologies related to filmmaking. And um, they, 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 uh, they had control over, you know, ownership of the movie. So these filmmakers resisting that had to get out and move west and literally try to run away from the patent makers so they could make movies illegally on their own. Eventually the patents um, dissolved. Um, but at the beginning, it was um, it was a break for the coast. This was the home of guerrilla filmmaking. <laughs> you're right. Describing right. That's right. Emily, and some people oh say that 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 um, the draw to Southern California was that they so that there was a proximity to Mexico. Should things actually get really hairy, these filmmakers could cross the border <laughs> into safety. Wow, e Emily, you know, share with us about. Um, early on sort of how word of mouth spread or how how the industry kind of established its, its foothold here? Well, I would agree with what Sam said. Um, escaping the Edison Trust was a big motivation. Um, and it, it, I always kind of chuckle thinking about it now because of just how much California has changed. But there, there were no unions. So there also, and there were no guilds at that point. So they did not have the same, not only were filmmakers avoiding Edison, but they were also avoiding um, the unions established on the East Coast around New York with acting. And, and so there were unions already in the early movie industry in New York? Well, Sam might be able to um, chime in here and um, correct help add to this yeah. but i'm um, not union there were no guilds like you know the the guilds yeah. are founded um in the 30s but i believe it's that's the theater guild right okay. so many actors coming over from theater or just um regulating broadway and performance in new york so filmmakers are concerned they're going to be that that influence is going to transfer over and also, real estate prices were amazingly, as I'm saying, this is where I always get a laugh from my students, yeah. um, land was cheap out here. And um, yes, there was amazing weather. We're enjoying one of those banner days right now yeah. in Southern California. But the, the versatility of landscapes, um, and that's still, I think, a huge appeal of living in Southern California, but particularly for filmmaking back then, which was primarily, I mean, the studio uh, system part, I think why it was called that, is after, by the late 20s, you're in a studio. And that has to do a lot with the tradition to sound. But in the 20s and teens, um, you, there was a lot shooting outside. That's why we have all those incredible locations and get to see what early Los Angeles was like in the silent films yes. of, of the masters because um, they're out everywhere. And I love trying to identify in the film. Now, wait a minute. Is that, is that uh, Balboa Island? Is, is that Bayona Creek? What is that landmark that we're seeing uh, in the filming of, of the movies? If you have questions about the history of the film industry establishing, establishing itself in Hollywood, we're at 86 Eight six six eight nine three five seven two two, eight six six eight nine three five seven two two, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Sam, let's talk about the workforce that that arrives because you know many of us have have um, people in our family who came here, wanted to break in, work in the business. Um, so when did the word get out that there were jobs here in the movies? Oh, immediately. Um, um, the movies were a hungry, a hungry beast looking to add people wherever was necessary. And because the industry didn't really exist yet, it was still in the process of becoming. 
So it was it was improvised. Hey, wait a second. We need someone to do this. We need someone to do that. Um, and they'd pull people off the streets and out of other professions. Um, it's 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 fun to remember and easy to forget that nobody wanted to be in the movie business. You you couldn't dream of a profession that didn't exist. <laughs> exist right. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? So you were other things. You were you were lawyers. You were jugglers. You were bankers. Um, and um, you were drawn to the money and the fun um, and the sense of community that was building in in Hollywood around this time. And and one of the things that really bonded the movies, which is what they called the people, by the way, not the uh, motion pictures. The people who came here were referred to as the movies. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yes. Um, and and one of the things that bonded them together was their sense of outsiderness from the surrounding neighborhoods, which were really, you know, more Protestant, conservative, um, um, prohibitionist. Um, farmers and ranchers who wanted to be left to their own and keep, keep daily hours. And then you get this raucous bunch of artists and <laughs> maniacs rolling down the street, um, working all night, um, dressed in costumes, getting their cars, you know, crashing their Keystone cop cars. And they're, they're really otherized by the community. But that's the thing that, that is really the source of their internal bond so funny I, I was gonna say sam growing up in beechwood canyon there there yes. was a neighbor's house that had a, a a joking sign that said no no children no dogs no actors uh on that, the sign that's a know? real sign <laughs> that, that, that's a real sign i mean it they used to have signs that say no children no dog no movies um because they they cause trouble how why would you want these people paying your rent when when the question of their income was was dubious to you? You know, um, go out and get a real job and then we'll talk about the rent. We're talking with Sam Wasson, film historian, author of Hollywood, The Oral History, and also with us from Chapman University, associate professor of film and media studies, Emily Carmen, joining us. We're at 866-893-5722. Professor, let's talk a bit about how this is an industry that's inventing itself. And it's kind of like with early television, they're figuring out how to do it and you know what the technology allows, what it doesn't very much uh, the same. And, and just give us a sense of what it was like for for films to be planned out or ideas to come up to be produced. What 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 are the ways they introduced novel ways of approaching shoots? Well, I think um, in the, uh, so it's by the late 1900s. So I think right, it's the first full-length feature film that was shot in Southern California. I think right, it was Cecil B. DeMille's The Squaw Man. I believe that's it. Um, so by, and this is a really interesting period in film history, we, we, as some historians call it the transitional era, um, because you're going from shorts, like really, if you've seen any of the early films by George Méliès or the Lumière brothers, Méliès, I think, could be like 10 minutes, and the Lumière brothers were, were like a minute. Um, but there was now that idea like, oh, people will sit and watch things longer and the idea to have longer entertainment vis-a-vis -vis the movies so what you're seeing as los angeles is crystallizing as the 
the movie colony capital um, of the United States and eventually the world is this experimentation with longer narrative forms. Um, so, and you know, D.W. Griffith is working around this time. Well, I mentioned DeMille. Also, many people don't remember her, um, but Lois Weber was right up there, the a female director, right up there with the, uh, with the guys as one of the highest paid directors at Universal. I think she was the highest paid director at Universal Studios by the end of the teens. And so there was a move to longer... Um, longer narratives, future films. So what we're what we're used to as a movie, you know, more than an hour, ninety minutes, um, maybe you know, even really long movies now, <laughs> three hours, such. But that capacity for what we're used to now, what is a a movie narrative, was being figured out in the twenties or in the teens. But you also had, as Sam mentioned, the Keystone Cops. You had Max Sennett making comedies, uh, crazy comedies. <laughs> That's where Charlie Chaplin gets his start. The um, amazing Mabel Normand, who was also part of the Keystone cast that became a, a star and director in her own right. Um, Mary Pickford begins around this time, 1915. She is the highest paid actor, male or female, the first movie star to earn a million dollars. And goes on to be on one of the founders of United Artists. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a really interesting period, and that's also cementing with Los Angeles growing as a, um, as a more important city. I just want to pick up on something you said about um, women in the industry because – um, this is something that more in recent years has been written about, but the number of women involved on the creative side of Hollywood was quite significant in the early years. And, uh, Emily, what to what do you attribute that? What, is it kind of this outlaw status that maybe enabled women to get a foothold in it in the same way Jewish immigrants were able to establish themselves because they were excluded from so many other industries? Absolutely, Larry. That's... Um... It's uh, what Sam has these sort of the outcast or outlaws um, of the uh, the movies as they were. Yeah, it's a new industry um, and kind of scoffed at by the you know wasp establishments of the United States. So. Um, Frankly, because no one took the movie seriously, I think that's why there was a preponderance of women working um, behind the camera. And it's astonishing to look at the numbers because it's far better than where we are today. Um, the number of female, I think it's about um, a quarter of screenwriters for women screenwriters. There's some really fascinating data, actually, on the AFI catalog, the AFI website, women they Women they talk about, you can check it out, open access. Um, but women screenwriters like Anita Luce and mm-hmm. Frances Mann, the top paid of their craft. I mentioned Lois Weber, Alice Guy Blachet, um, a French immigrant. Um, but she possibly made the, the first uh, short with a capacity for narrative um, and had a story career in the early years. Um, and there's, there's many more. I mentioned Mary Pickford. Mm-hmm. But uh, you're right that once people started to take the movie seriously and it became a big business enterprise in a the profession. 20s. Yeah. Exactly. That's when you see a pushing out of women from a lot of the behind-the-camera positions. We're talking with Professor at Chapman University, Emily Carmen. Also with us is Sam Wasson. He's historian and author of Hollywood, The Oral History. We're at 866 935722 or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the important landmarks of Southern California where the motion picture industry was based. And it goes beyond, of course, uh, the big studios. We'll be back in just a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Every Monday, we take on a different slice of history in Southern California and explore it. 
Uh, with the Oscars coming up in just a few weeks, we're talking about the origins of the film industry in Southern California. We're at 866-893-5722. Sam, let's talk about the the places in Southern California that uh, we associate the earliest days of of the film industry here. We, of course, have have big studios. But, you know, where were some of the, the play, you know, maybe smaller places that were very significant in those embryonic years? Well, God, there were... Um, I, I always liked the Ver- Vernon's, um, which was uh, a sort of a club speakeasy uh, that, that people started gathering in. Um, you know, the really that the, the social life of Hollywood started at at home. Um, there wasn't there wasn't a, there were there weren't places to go, really. You know, this was like a, a pioneer town. And like I said, the, the movies were were not really welcomed. So um, parties were held inside and at people's homes and they kept strange hours again, which did not lend the movies to you know, patronizing restaurants. It was a life of basically the home and the studio. Um, so I'm hesitating yeah, to answer that. There are question. really places beyond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, but um, Emily, do you can you chime in on that one? Maybe you know something I don't. Uh, early early landmarks. Well, I was thinking about some yeah, of the yeah. places, like even smaller, you know, before the larger studios developed, where there were film centers in our area. Uh, well, actually, yeah, one just came to mind because um, because you still see the traces of it in around where I live in the Silver Lake Atwater area, the Edendale Studios. Because um, I think there's right the isn't the Echo Park Library still called the Edendale Library? Yeah, it is Edendale um, Branch. Yeah. And there's that cool um, bar that is the Edendale, where I believe it was. Um, there's a Tom Mix bar in there, an homage to the silent film Cowboy. Tom well, and Mix. the historic studio building right. is still there mm-hmm. on um, Glendale Boulevard. Yeah, and that was really an apex of early production. I think right, it was. Um, oh, I can see him in my. I can see the book by. Andrew Arish, um, Selig, William Selig, the man who invented Hollywood. Oh, good job, Emily. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, that's actually one of the the reasons why I love living where I do, because being a historian, movie history is just everywhere. You're right in the Mm -hmm. center of Mm -hmm. it. Absolutely. Wally in Woodland Hills says, why are the Horsley brothers who founded a studio at Hollywood and Gower rarely mentioned? Sam, are you familiar with the Horsleys? Not, not, I mean, I don't really think they should be very mentioned. So, oh, okay. (laughs) Justice. Um, uh, What are the great works? I mean, I, I, there, there's so many other things to talk about. So much, so many giant contributions to the, to the movie business that um, it would really, it would take a real specialist to acknowledge a a contribution like that. Let's talk uh, about uh, how the performances really move from the stage, from vaudeville uh, to screen. And Sam, what are the ways, particularly that the early comedies incorporate some of these acts that were developed for live audiences? Well, Hollywood figured out pretty quickly that in its scramble to find material, um, you could just buy it from Broadway. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it started out just shooting Broadway shows. You know, if you just think about 
putting a camera from the point of view of an audience in the proscenium, not cutting, keep it in the wide shot. It's the worst possible version of a movie. Um, and that's, that's how Hollywood started. Um, but once Hollywood figured out that the audience was interested in the actors. Now, again, like we take this to be second nature now. We take it for granted that there's such a thing as stars. But this also had to be discovered. And part and parcel with the star is the close-up, which is why the star, as we think of it, doesn't is not a theatrical phenomenon. You know, our hunger and desire for intimate information about these people um, comes from the proximity that we're allowed uh, with the camera and cutting. But again, all of this was was improvised. I don't know if that answers the question. I think it does. Yeah. And um, at what point does there become uh, an enormous need for employees? You know, when do the studios really become factory models and you need large scale crews to make movies? With sound, what what happens with sound is that you need to control the sonic environment. So how are you going to do that? You can't just shoot on the street anymore. Um, you have to have sound stages. So if you're going to have sound stages, you're going to need real estate. And you could see right there the physical expansion of movie making is going to require technicians, architects, land, maintenance. And if you're working on a, in a studio, it's not going to be so easy to just roll down the street and get a prop. Maybe more convenient to have in-house props, costumes, sets. So the outsourcing of movies ends around that time that the expansion of movies begins. And it's right there on the money, 1928, 29, with the explosion of sound, which again, like the star system, nobody expected. Um, we have to keep remembering that the movies that we know them uh, were, were not born perfect. Um, <laughs> well, and, and the other thing is I think about all the capital needed mm -hmm. for the kind of infrastructure you're describing. Yes. I mean, uh, yes. Professor, they had, yeah. they had to figure out ways to fund all of this, right. too. And that um, I would absolutely agree with what Sam said. But what's also happening as sound um, becomes the standard um, by which Hollywood movies are made is the consolidation of Wall Street backing to finance this mass expansion. Um, and all, I mean, they're still around and there's new um, new mergers possibly in the works, but you have Paramount, Fox, Warner Brothers, MGM, um, and RKO, which I think someone owns that IP, but it's not a studio anymore. But all of these media conglomerates, they really were, were solidified in the 20s and um, backed by Wall Street money. And um, then with the transition to sound, you know, that whole capital behind the movies was solidified. Uh, we have a quick question, Bobby in Silver Lake. Why did studios set up ancillary businesses thinking about uh, Selig Zoo and the admission to Universal City? Did they need the money? Sam, brief comment on that. Well, the, the zoo, uh, I, I believe, preceded Louis B. Mayer. Um, uh, no, no, they didn't need the money. Um, the in, in the case of Universal, they were always welcoming people in to see to see what they were working on. 
Um, it was a it was a promotional thing, and the movies were always very very conscious of how they were perceived. Like I mentioned before, um, they were very much outsiders, and also being Jewish, a lot you know Jewish run businesses um, were uneasy about how the world perceived what they were doing. Was this art? Was this entertainment? Yeah. Was this immoral? So the need to constantly be selling themselves to the world was a a, a big thing. It the makes sense. It's a, a one-off. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Sam, thank you as always. Great to have you with us. Film historian, his book, Hollywood, The Oral History, and my thanks to Chapman, professor of film and media studies, Emily Carmen. Thanks so much. It's Air Talk on LA at 89.3. Much more to come in the second hour, and I'll tell you about it in a moment. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on L.A. is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Nice to hear in Suzanne Watley's update that Uncle Charlie, Charlie Wilson's getting a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So many great hits for the funk group The Gap Band and Charlie Wilson is a solo performer. Coming up later this hour on Air Talk, the book One Day I'll Work for Myself, The Dream and Delusion That Conquered America. Benjamin C. Waterhouse lays out how the push to try and get people uh, to run their own businesses has had some unintended negative consequences. He'll talk about that, and I'll be so interested to hear what listeners uh, think about entrepreneurialism and the ways that it's been portrayed. But we begin with a $2.5 billion proposal from Disneyland to expand the theme park and to uh, take some of the private streets surrounding Disneyland for what the company is calling an immersive guest experience. The proposal is dubbed Disneyland Forward and would be built out over the course of a a decade. But, of course, approval is needed from the Anaheim City Council. Joining us is editor of the news site ThemeParkInsider.com, Robert Niles. Robert, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So what do we understand about the types of attractions, perhaps, or the weaving of hotels and restaurants Mm. into park attractions that's contemplated here? The heart of the proposal is that Disneyland wants to change the agreement it made back in the 1990s before it built Disney California Adventure that reserves space around the periphery of the resort exclusively for parking, kind of as a buffer between the theme parks and the surrounding 
ideas. Uh, Disney space is at a premium at Disneyland now, as anyone who's visited knows. So they want to be able to use that space for attractions and hotels and um, other uses other than just uh, surface parking. Uh, so they proposed uh, changing these rules, and they're talking about bringing some lands that they've designed for other parks around the world, such as the World of Frozen Land that they just opened in Hong Kong, or the Zootopia Land that they just opened in Shanghai. Oh. They've also pitched potentially a cocoa-themed land that they've also talked about for Walt Disney World. So, But they have not officially announced anything that they would be doing. At this point, they're trying to keep the focus on just simply changing the land use rules that they currently have with the city of Anaheim. I understand they're looking at, I guess, this was to replace that surface parking you're talking about a 17,000 space garage yes they've already gotten the approval to build this garage that's over on the east side of the property right next to i-5 uh, the question then has has been for several years is how will they bring those people over to the resort they've got a new proposal now for a pedestrian bridge now a previous proposal for proposal for a pedestrian bridge really enraged a lot of the businesses on harbor so disney's taking the time to be a bit more proactive and talk about them so they're talking about this new pedestrian bridge would have street access to those businesses on harbor as it allows people to get over from that new parking garage over to the theme parks without actually having to cross the street at car level and and so the park would potentially uh, extend across disneyland drive to walnut street what what's there right now Right now, there's a big parking garage, I mean, excuse me, a parking lot for downtown Disney that's kind of south oh, of yeah. what's about to be renamed the Pixar Place Hotel, the former Paradise Pier Hotel. That's a huge surface area that they could do a lot with. And also, uh, kind of the old downtown Disney parking area, which is now being used for a lot of cast parking, that's another area that they could start building on as well. So there there's quite a bit of acreage there that they have to play with. The question, of course, is now, do you connect that to the existing theme parks or do you just create this as a whole new third gate? Disneyland hasn't said. And uh, so the the money that would be um, that would be spent here, mm-hmm. what the, the, that the city would get, what, what would that be for? Is this traffic mitigation or or, you know, to help businesses? How where would that money go? Part of this money will be going to assist uh, affordable housing in the city of Anaheim that they've committed, I believe, about $30 million to that. Part of it would be going towards sewer improvements on Catella Avenue. Uh, Part of it would be to compensate the city for buying some of the city-owned streets that are currently within the resort, such as Magic Way, which goes along the south edge of the parking garages right now. And then also uh, part of Clementine that's actually just kind of inside is now the Toy Story lot. Uh, So Disney would assume ownership of this, which presumably would then give them the right to to redevelop that space as attraction space rather than having to maintain those as city streets as they are currently. All right. We're talking with Robert Niles, editor of the news site ThemeParkInsider.com. Let's talk about what this would potentially mean for Disneyland guests. What, What do you think is the likely way that they're you know, going to be looking to either um, increase the amount of time that people spend at the resorts or, or mm-hmm. you know, activities that would be added to it. In the near term, if this is approved and this process is ongoing right now over the next couple of months, the first thing we're going to see, obviously, would be a lot of construction around the resort as they uh, as Disney works to uh, to build whatever it is that they're going to be building. But ultimately, the payoff for Disneyland fans is a bunch of new attractions, potentially an entire 
theme park uh, wow. that would be devoted to some of Disney's more recent IP, such as Frozen and Coco. And one of the things they've pitched is a Wakanda-themed land from uh, Marvel's Black Panther, which was something that they've not done at any other theme park around the world. So it's the opportunity to do a lot of really fun, new, cutting-edge stuff for fans that, of course, would entice people to, uh, you know, stay at the park longer, uh, you know, week-long vacations instead of just a few days, staying at uh, potentially the new hotels that they would have there. Also, a lot of support for Anaheim's convention business, just making it a more attractive place for businesses to come in and have annual meetings rather than going to some other convention markets around the country. Robert, what, um, what do uh, does Disney's theme parks represent in terms of overall re- revenue generation for the company? Is it is is uh, is it still a leading profit center for Disney? Oh, absolutely! It is. It is. Um not just a, a, a big leading profit center for them, it's the consistency from it. I mean, you throw out the blip of the uh, the pandemic, which just roiled everything in the economy. Uh, traditionally, the studio was up and down, whether they've got hits or not. They were riding high a few years ago when Avengers Endgame was out. Right now, the studio's having a tough time. Universal's doing much better at the box office than Disney, but the parks are still chugging along right there. Uh, they've got a huge annual pass base in California and just a huge number of fans that support that company at parks, not just here in California, but around the world. So mm-hmm. it's just that consistency uh right there, always bolstering the bottom line that is very attractive to the Walt Disney Company. And that's one of the reasons why they've made a commitment to increasing investment in their parks worldwide over the next 10 years. Robert, what about concerns of of neighbors? First, uh, the traffic is going to be increased. If you're going to bring more people to the site, that's an understandable concern. And Mm -hmm. also fears that this will lead to property values going up in the area and making it more difficult for people to live near the park. Yeah, I mean, the third, $30 million for affordable housing is certainly something that's welcomed, but I don't know that that's going to offset uh, the problems that we're seeing in general in housing throughout Southern California. As for traffic, I think the idea, at least, is that new parking garage with the direct access to I-5 will help keep some traffic off the surface streets that right now is going to the Toy Story lot. So that there might be some traffic mitigation with this, actually, but we'll have to see how that plays out ultimately. Uh, But the big thing for the city of Anaheim is we all just got to see for 16 months what it was like to not have Disneyland there. And a lot of people realize what the power of that uh, property is to the economy in the Anaheim area and throughout Southern California. So I think there's a renewed interest right now in making sure that that continues to be an attractive destination for people, not just locally, but from throughout the world. And this is the sort of thing that could help do that for the next generation. I think I was reading that uh, Disneyland is the major tax contributor to Anaheim's budget. Is that correct? Absolutely. It is a multi-million dollar tax contributor. And then also when you uh, uh, do the multiplier, I know that they've had people at Cal State Fullerton uh, uh, detail this, but what it does in terms of bringing people into the hotels and restaurants and, and everything else around Disneyland is it's just, it is one of the world's premier tourist destinations. Lots of communities, uh, Whenever they're putting out something new, they're always talking about, oh, this is going to be our Disneyland. Well, we've got the original right here in Southern (laughs) California, and it's really delivering for people. Just hotel state tax revenue, according to the L.A. Times, 
for Anaheim is expected uh, to be more than $236 million. Most of that, of course, people going to Disneyland. There are conventions mm-hmm. as well in Anaheim, so there are other reasons. But Disneyland, of course, is the behemoth when it comes to driving tourism to Anaheim. Thank you so much, Robert Niles. Appreciate you talking with us about this proposal from Disneyland. Thanks for having me. Editor of News Site, ThemeParkInsider.com, joining us to talk about this uh, proposal uh, that uh, we'll see what the reception is from the Anaheim City Council. Coming up on Air Talk, our Jacob Margolis will join us to talk about his visit to the site of an overpass being built over the Ventura 101 freeway in Agoura Hills at Liberty Canyon Road. Uh, this to enable mountain lions and other species that live in the Santa Monica Mountains to be able to traverse the range over the freeway without risking their lives to cross or without having an ever smaller uh, hunting grounds or, or place to find mates. We'll talk about what Jacob saw when we come back in just a minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LA is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Jacob Margolis's most recent piece at LAS.com is titled, Will a Mountain Lion Cross the Road? Maybe not. If there's too much light, Jacob was out at the location where that massive overpass is being built over the Ventura Freeway in Agoura Hills to provide not just mountain lions, but uh, other species to move through a broader range of habitat. Jacob is senior science reporter for LAS. Jacob, good to have you with us. So happy to be back, Larry. Uh, so first of all, what, how is the uh, construction proceeding there? What's been done so far? Um, how do I describe it? Uh, you know, it, it is clearly present, but it is not very far along, um, although I'm sure the people that are building the project would possibly argue. But as far as I know, it's, it is it is on track. So ultimately, it will be, um, you know, quite a crossing. Uh, you know, it's a, I think it's a couple hundred feet basically across over the freeway. And it's meant to funnel um, animals either from like the Agora Hills or from the Santa Monica mountainside from one side to the other. Um, and then there's a separate kind of little bump uh, crossing over the uh, Agora Road there as well. So it's, it's really meant to be a big thoroughfare. So give us a sense of what it's like, because you were up there, I think, right at dusk, have a mm-hmm. sense of sort of what an animal might see at night or hear. What was it like? 
Yeah, it was am amazingly intense. So um, I was up there because I had read a recent study that basically said that mountain lions tend to, in particular, to avoid point sources of light. So floodlights that people shoot out into the wilderness, street lights, cars, that sort of thing, which this crossing in part is supposed to enable. And we could talk more about that. But I mean, gosh, when we stood right next to the freeway in the dead of night, um, it was so bright you could read a driver's license and so loud I could barely do my interview. Wow. Now, what sorts of mitigations are planned for the overpass to try and make it dark and, and try and attract the animals to use it? Yeah, I had a conversation with um, one of the, the like a leading landscape architect on the project, and he was saying that they're doing a couple of different things. One is they have these giant gabion walls, uh, big basically rocks and cages, cage walls that will help attenuate some of that. The crossing itself will help block some uh, road noise as well as light coming from the road. There's vegetation being planted that should do that as well. Um, and then they're what they're going to do is probably shield the streetlights and shrink them down. So a big problem that uh, has been seen is that mountain lions, you know, we went out to kind of into the hills and then when it was dark and we looked back towards the freeway, it's like peaceful out in the hills, really nice. But when you look back towards that freeway, it's basically a deadly river of light to these mountain lions. And it's one of the big reasons why we have not seen mountain lions really move back and forth into the Santa Monica's and out and eventually, you know, to like Los Padres National Forest. It's rare for them to do that. And so, um, you know, hopefully those mitigations of like making sure the light doesn't look as intense out in the wilderness uh, will help. Is is there thought, Jacob, as well, that once you have some crossings that are occurring and, and including prey of mountain lions, mm -hmm. that that and they see that they can do it safely despite any of the ambient noise and light, that the, the, essentially they'll become trained to know that that is a safe crossing? Yeah, so mountain lions are very, very curious. They have good memories. They tend to study things before they actually do them. And if you look at the tracking data and you talk to people that have been paying attention to mountain lions in these areas for a long time, they will often go right up to a freeway and stop and watch it and then, you know, oftentimes not cross. Um, usually they only cross if they're, uh, you know, juvenile males that are trying to, that are getting kicked out of an area or something like that. Um, but so basically, uh, I, I spoke with a guy named Paul Beyer, who has learned, who was one of the first people to figure out mountain, mountain lion behavior. And he said he tracked one mountain lion. This is back in the, I believe, the 1980s through the Santa Ana Mountains. And like every night they're walking behind this lion. They have their little beeping tracker with the collar on it. They're staying just behind it. And all of a sudden, one at night, the lion plops down on a bluff overlooking, I think it was like the highway, like 91. And it was clearly waiting for the sun to rise to check out what highway one was for one, because it was bright and it was noisy. And then it was also making sure that it was worth crossing that highway to go to the other side because there was wilderness over there. And so he said that in the morning he saw the mountain lion looked and then the next night the mountain lion took the darkest path the mountain lion could find past that freeway. There was another lion that didn't that just tried to cross it and then got hit and never ultimately crossed. So they will study their surroundings and try to figure out the best path. Uh, Jacob, uh, you didn't write about it in this piece, but I was just wondering if it came up in conversation. I would assume there are, there are benefits for other species, like even deer having a wider area that they can travel, and and that mm -hmm. that this would be good because it connects larger population bases and enlarges the the pool to mate mm -hmm. with. With that's all good, right? 
Yeah, so the major problem that they're facing, the answer is yes. Uh, it's great for, it should be great for all species. This is, they pick this spot in particular because it's one of the darkest, kind of least developed connected spots on both sides of the freeway for the 101 around there. And it feeds into the Santa Monica Mountains on one side. And then on the other side, it could eventually feed into, like I mentioned, Los Padres National Forest if some other corridors are built as well. But the problem that they're running into in the Santa Monica's in particular is that there's about a dozen, an estimated dozen or so adults and subadults there left, a dozen, that's it. And they're showing signs of inbreeding. Um, it shows up as a kink in their tails, actually. And this has been known for a little while. The, and so they're hoping that by increasing the traffic back and forth, um, you know, all you need is is one male to go in there and possibly take over part of the area. Mountain lions are very territorial and their areas are pretty big. Uh, and then mate with some females. And then, you know, hopefully it does help with genetic diversity. We're talking with Jacob Margolis, LAS uh, senior science reporter. Rob in the Mid Wilshire district asks if uh, people will be able to use the overpar- overpass, whether it be part of the trail network. My understanding, Jacob, was no, because the whole idea is to leave this for the animals. Yeah, I you know what? Um, I guess we're gonna have to wait and see, but I'll believe you, Larry. So that's a really good question. I'll follow up. <laughs> I'd asked about that, and and they said, well, you know, we may try and find some ways for people to observe. We and, have enough roads, you know, but, don't we, Larry? Yes, we have enough we pathways. We could. We give do. This one and the other thing is, you can put a camera up there for people to see without intruding on the wildlife that's there to which see what's passing do, by. Yeah, yeah which yeah, would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And and by the way, you mentioned deer as well. So mountain lions will go ahead and they will follow those food sources. Right. And one thing that I found interesting through this whole process, because I was really focused on the light component, was that deer, it is understood that deer will actually, you know, we see deer on the side of the road um, near humans uh, in light, in light. They will actually use that to kind of protect themselves is the idea, um, because the mountain lions don't want to hang out in the light. They don't want to be near humans. And so if the deer, if this is a dark pathway, deer are deciding to use it, the mountain lions hopefully will too. All right. Jacob Margolis, who's senior science reporter at L.A. As you can read his piece, will a mountain lion cross the road? Maybe not if there's too much light. I mean, it, it's uh, horrible to contemplate. I mean, what if they found, Jacob, that that um, th- that the mountain lions didn't use the overpass? That would that would be <laughs> disastrous after spending, you know, millions and millions million of dollars. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Uh, to, for the record, for everyone, uh, every single mountain lion expert I talked to a lot said that the likelihood is very high that they will use this. And um, but it, you know, there's a lot of area around this crossing that is not going to be developed. It's not going to be changed. And so you don't want to put off the lions from using it because that's one of the species definitely. But like I said, you only need one. So, And there have, there are other wildlife overcrossings in other parts of the world, aren't mm-hmm. there? So the, Yeah, but this is a extremely busy. It's one of the most trafficked pieces of like areas of freeway, um, I believe, in the state. And really, you don't know how noisy and intense it is until you walk. I t- Go on a hike into Liberty Canyon and go look back at the freeway, anyone, and then walk up to it. You'll see how intense it is. Can, I, can, I can only imagine. So let's hope this becomes a boon for the mountain lion uh, and other populations that uh, reside in the Santa Monica Mountains. Jacob, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Thanks, Larry. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Jacob Margolis is senior science reporter at LAist. I just want to remind you that tickets are now on sale for the Film Week 22nd Annual Academy Awards Preview. It's coming up Sunday, March 3rd at the historic Orpheum Theater. 
on Broadway in downtown Los Angeles. We were there last year and had a wonderful large crowd that came out to watch clips of all of the Academy-nominated Best Pictures, to hear all of our film critics on stage opine and uh, in very funny fashion about the Oscar nominations and to argue passionately about it. They do uh, speak to each other, by the way, at the end of the show, even though it may seem sometimes tensions get a little high. Um, but they're going to be there on stage. It's going to be a wonderful afternoon, 1 o'clock, Sunday afternoon, March 3rd, at the Orpheum Theater downtown. Get your tickets now at laus.com slash events. That's laus.com slash events. It's such a wonderful array of Best Picture nominees, some incredible acting performances, uh, screenplays that are going to be highly competitive with each other. You want to be there and hear those categories talked about on uh, Sunday, March 3rd. We continue on Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Benjamin C. Waterhouse is a professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. His new book is titled, One Day I'll Work for Myself, The Dream and Delusion That Conquered America. I think for many of us, we think of entrepreneurialism as somehow embedded in our country's DNA, that our particularly individualistic bent in this country, uh, a history of breakthroughs in technology and methods that are associated associated with the United States, that much of this comes from this idea of people taking their own concepts, working uh, constantly to achieve them, and building their own businesses out of that. But what Professor Waterhouse looks at is sort of the darker side of that in many cases. Benjamin Waterhouse, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Well, thanks, Larry. It's great to be with you. So let's talk about the history of entrepreneurialism back before even Peter Drucker, who was, of course, such a presence here in Southern California, Claremont uh, Graduate University. So let's right. let's let's talk about um, sort of going back in American history. How was this notion considered? Well, you're absolutely right at what you said in the introduction about this concept of working for yourself and being independent, having a really long and deeply ingrained history in American culture. Uh, you know, it goes all the way back uh, to obviously the, the the stories that we tell and the, the kind of national myths that have grown up uh, sometimes accurately, sometimes uh, less accurately uh, about people fleeing uh, lack of opportunity in, in Europe in particular, and then eventually from other parts of the world uh, as well, and, and, and settling in, in, the, uh, in the North American continent. But in terms of our kind of national ideology, one of the most maybe obvious places to look is uh, back in the 1780s and the ideology of, of Thomas Jefferson, uh, who did so much to kind of cement and, and create this uh, notion that real political freedom came from working for oneself. And in the 1780s, that meant as a farmer, working the land by yourself, where you were completely uh, autonomous, independent, and self-reliant, and you couldn't be controlled by any outside force. And that, for Jefferson, was the kind of uh, very ironic and hypocritical uh, from Jefferson's uh, Jefferson's perspective. But that was the the kind of seed of of real democratic liberty. And of course, Jefferson was speaking in a pre-industrial world as, as the Industrial Revolution took off uh, the notion of 
that you had to work the farm in order to be uh, an autonomous free citizen gave way to you know an industrial society. But even still, uh, the notion that people should kind of come up through the ranks and start off by working in a shop for someone else, but eventually uh, strike out on their own and, and achieve real kind of rugged independence uh, became a mainstay of American uh, cultural thinking well into the 19th century and really into the beginning part of the 20th century. And how much of do you think is is this sort of related to our colonial past, the idea that, you know, for early in this country, people came from um, from Britain and, and elsewhere where they felt subjugated, uh, options very limited. How much of this is related to the notion of professional freedom? Well, I think you know in the in the colonial period, it was certainly part of the the story that early Americans told themselves. It was also the reality of the economy that they lived in um, relative to Europe, the United States, and the colonial Britain and colonial British uh, possessions, and then the United States was a land of uh, relatively more uh, farming land and and opportunities for physical expansion. The, the story of America in the first couple hundred years is, is a story of territorial movement uh, and particularly of, you know, the people who were the advantaged classes, the, the primarily white and English uh, descended colonists and, and settlers who who moved in and, and took advantage of um, the political environment and frequently by force uh, created a, a place to uh, to have these kinds of opportunities. I think what's you know what's interesting is that there's a there's a disconnect between the way uh, sort of cultural ideas get embedded and what actual lived practice really is. Starting in the mid 19th century, the percentage of people who worked for themselves began to decline. So one of the hallmarks of a of an industrializing economy is actually that large companies grow and people start to work in greater numbers for bigger and bigger employers. And so what I try to illuminate in my book, which really focuses on the most recent period, the last 40 to 50 years, is that we had a we've had a bit of a cultural turnaround after maybe a century of declining interest in working for oneself. It experienced a rebound starting in the 1970s and 1980s. What was it like after World War II? You got the GI Bill and so you, you know, women have been working in jobs during the war that men had historically done because of the shortage in the workforce. Uh, you have soldiers returning who uh, are going to college, get the GI Bill. So what do we see as the biggest trend uh, in the workforce after the war? Well, the biggest trend in the American economy and the American workforce in the middle of the 20th century is toward the dominance of large companies, large corporations uh, as employers, but also as sort of parts of our social world. Uh, the, the 30 years or so after World War II are remarkable in a historical sweep because of the massive economic prosperity that accompanied all of the things that you just mentioned, uh, including a decrease in uh, inequality over the course of those three decades. The, the gap between the richest and poorest Americans uh, got smaller. The middle class rose considerably. Of course, it didn't include everybody, right? There were lots of groups that were cut out of that promise but I think what's most important to recognize is that the groups that were cut out, which included uh, African-Americans and people of color in general, uh, women to a, a very significant extent, despite their increasing presence in the paid workforce, uh, those groups mobilized explicitly to become part of this major economy. And the idea was that 
they shouldn't have to sort of hustle and struggle and go it alone, but rather they could reap the benefits that white workers were getting, white male workers in particular, at large companies, at large employers with healthcare benefits and uh, retirement pensions and, and things like that. When does the dissatisfaction with of, of this corporate world really start? Well, of course, you can see traces of dissatisfaction all throughout that kind of glorious, uh, what they call the, the 30 glorious years after World War II, right? You can see traces of it in social critique and uh, cultural critiques. But I think the real uptick in widespread disaffection with corporate bigness is a function of what happens in the 1970s and 1980s, and the 70s in particular, when the the economy basically stops growing. And the uh, that rising tide that lifts all boats was no longer rising. Uh, certain boats were getting lifted and certain people were we're, we're making a killing, but across the board from the 1970s forward, we see a, a stagnation in middle class and lower class incomes, and we see a, a dearth of benefits and, and a greater instability in work. People are getting laid off, companies are closing, jobs are going to other parts of the country or sometimes overseas. Uh, we see deindustrialization completely changing the landscape of major parts of the country. And that promise of the post-war period that you know you could you could work hard, you could work your way up, and that everybody could achieve this uh, stability starts to not look like it's uh, available to a growing number of people. Uh, we're talking with the author of One Day I'll Work for Myself, The Dream and Delusion That Conquered America, Professor Benjamin C. Waterhouse. He's historian at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So who were the early evangelists for entrepreneurialism in, in this period of the 70s where disillusionment about corporate jobs is building? Well, the point I make in, in my book is that there's a this is coming from a number of different corners. There's certainly a political movement around boosting the voices of small business owners in particular, mom and pop stores, Main Street USA kinds of companies. Uh, and in that way, they tapped into a, a longstanding cultural tradition that goes back to the early part of the 20th century when small uh, small grocery stores, for example, teamed up against a big menace of your giant chain stores like the A&P and things like that. But I think increasingly you also have an intellectual component to this. And by the 1970s and into especially the 1980s, business schools and uh, professional economists and management theorists are all uniting around the idea that entrepreneurship as a sort of field of study, but also as a practiced vocation, can be the thing that will revive uh, what had by that point been written off as a moribund economy. Uh, you know, in earlier years, business schools didn't really teach entrepreneurship in the early part of the 20th century, and they barely did it in the mid-20th century. They were much more focused on training business students to become managers and to become accountants and to become the kinds of people who could work in that huge corporate world. And by the 1980s, business students themselves are pushing back and saying, no, we want to learn how to uh, write a business plan and how to seek out venture capital and how to uh, create something that's going to grow rapidly. Uh, that, of course, is, a, is something that very small numbers of people actually do, but it changes the national conversation and really puts a lot more of a cultural premium on uh, on the possibilities. The other thing that happens is the tech boom, which, again, is a relatively small part of the economy and certainly the number of people who became fabulously rich and famous through technology uh, 
is relatively small, but they become very famous. And we start to associate the miracles of uh, of entrepreneurship and associating them with, with people like your Bill Gateses and your Steve Jobses. We're talking with Benjamin C. Waterhouse. One day I'll work for myself, The Dream and Delusion that Conquered America. That's his book. And I'd love to hear from you uh, as listeners, some of your thoughts about entrepreneurialism, how it's touted in this country, what sorts of effects you see it having in opportunity. It's something that certainly has been touted in communities of color as a way of being able to build family wealth and independence. We'll talk about some of the ways that's played out or not. We're at 866-893-5722. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Jessica in Pasadena emailed us, my friends and family think I watch TV and pop bonbons all day since I own my own online business. I've never worked this hard since starting my business several years ago. It's 12-hour days. When you're an entrepreneur, you're on all the time. That's Jessica in Pasadena. I welcome your thoughts at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We're talking with professor at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Benjamin C. Waterhouse. His book, One Day I'll Work for Myself, The Dream and Delusion That Conquered America. I think we understand the dream pretty well. We've talked about some of these points, Professor, about the independence, the opportunity that maybe for someone without a college degree, but with smarts and creativity and a willingness to work hard and effectively can build something that that person really has some degree of control over. The idea that despite it may require, you know, much more work to do uh, a self-employed job, that perhaps there's less stress because we know stress is is linked to a sense of lack of control. And when you're working for yourself, uh, you can work to the point of exhaustion, but at least you know you have a degree of control over what you're doing. What is, though, the delusion that you see in in sort of the uh, this, this philosophy of entrepreneurialism? Well, I was taken by that email from Jessica that you just read because I think it really captures what you hear from a very large number of people who uh, who do work for themselves uh, at various levels and various types of companies uh, and various levels of, of success and, and incomes, which is just how much work it is and how little understood it is. Because I think part of the delusion that I was interested in, in tracing out in the uh, in this book was not so much the delusion of the people who are doing the independent work, but the sort of broader society and the political system that looks at them in a certain way and says, oh, well, this must be uh, this must be great. This must be easy. This must be low stress. And aren't aren't you fortunate or aren't you uh, particularly virtuous because you're you're doing this? And I certainly think that there are people for whom this working for themselves and running a company, whether it's a one person operation or, you know, a, a large company is uh, is a great move, and there are certainly people who have the um, the particular talents to to make a, a great living at it. But there are lots of others who kind of hear this message that this is the the least worst option for them. And uh, my concern with a lot of the uh, the stuff that I you know researched and tried to trace the origins of is that the potential for people being exploited, uh, oftentimes quite unwittingly, is is really um, is really high. And so. 
I was I was interested in sort of tracing out how the dream intersects with with a delusion and how sometimes uh, the the motivations that people have for going into uh, self employment are far from uh, far from clear and far from from good and in fact they can distract us as a society from trying to address real social problems real inequities and and real uh, and real challenges that we might have if we say well you know you don't you don't like the job you have you don't like the wages you earn you should just go work for yourself that seems to me to be kind of punting well and and I, to me, it ignores the fact, and I'd be curious your thoughts on this, Professor, that um, I think a lot of this is the way that people are wired. I know that Peter Drucker, his view was sort of entrepreneurialism can be taught, that anybody right. has the ability to learn the skills necessary to be a successful entrepreneur. When I look at, you know, at, at the people around me who are successful entrepreneurs— they yes, they've done all the study. They've learned. They they meet with other preneurs to learn best practices. All that's true, but they're wired that way. The point where, in many cases, they would find it so difficult to work for someone else. They would feel so constrained in their ideas, their ability to try different things, that it would be hell for them to be in that environment. So, so being their own boss is 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 really who they are. It's it's a part of a deeper seated identity, and I'm just curious your your thoughts about that. And and so then, how do we think of that when it comes to um, our societal view of entrepreneurship? Entrepreneurialism. Well, I think you're exactly right. There are certain types of people who are uh, willing or, or maybe even driven to work for themselves and take even a, a little bit of a, of, of a sacrifice to do it, certainly in terms of, of time and, and predictability and stability. And uh, those are the things that we kind of give up if you, if you leave your, your day job. And if you're willing to trade all of that for the independence, for the not having to report to somebody, um, that may well be. Uh, a good path for you. Uh, I think you know the challenge is that what people are also giving up in many cases uh, is things like healthcare and benefits and uh, a, a sort of predictability about knowing where their um, where their their income is going to come from. And you know when you talk about stress, there's there's certainly a lot of stress in uh, in, in having to kind of report to people, but there, and having your day dictated for you, there's also a whole lot of stress in not knowing uh, what the future will bring. So leaving aside the long days, uh, there's a there's a lot of you know challenges that go into entrepreneurship, whether you're particularly successful at it or or not. And you know it's important to realize there are a lot of people who may feel like this is a good option for them, and then find that it's that it's not, and that whatever kind of market advantage or niche they thought they could fill uh, is not ultimately giving them the same level of, of income that they might have received uh, if they had stayed in, in, the, in the traditional workforce. Let's talk with Jim in Irvine. You're on air talk with Benjamin Waterhouse, author of One Day I'll Work for Myself. Yeah, I just wanted to point out the, the uh, risk of, um, you know, the kind of the high-end entrepreneurial uh, Spite of that, you know, in terms of these very wealthy, um, uh, famous people, you know, it doesn't really, it doesn't show the 10,000 other entrepreneurs that didn't make it and what they had to sacrifice, you know, not, not having a good salary for 10 years, um, you know, not taking care of their health, not being there for their, their, their wife or their children um, or their parents when they need them. You know, there's, there's a lot that goes into that and that's not shown. So, um, there's a there's a huge risk there, and and so you know, like 
the author said it, or the professor said it's not for everybody. Yeah, Jim, I appreciate it very much. 866-893-5722. Although I think for many people who are entrepreneurs, you know, they work someone else. They're kind of people who might be working long hours anyway, who would be wanting to ascend the the professional ladder in the workplace. And and so, you know, they might be doing that, but 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 wouldn't feel like that whatever the spoils are are fully coming to them, that they're doing it on behalf of other people. I think that that sometimes factors into this as well. We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email your thoughts to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. I'll be sharing a comment uh, that's emailed to us when we come back. Professor Benjamin C. Waterhouse, one day I'll work for myself, the dream and delusion that conquered America. Back in a minute. Working for oneself, our focus on air talk with University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, professor of history, Benjamin Waterhouse, author of One Day I'll Work for Myself, The Dream and Delusion That Conquered America. Joseph emailed us, I'm very thankful that online online freelancing websites allow me to find work that's in my specialty. I don't do well putting in a regular nine to five. I now earn over $300 an hour when I do work and can manage my energy much better than when I used to be a salaried employee. That's Joseph joining us on AirTalk. You know, Professor, there are so many more ways for people to work from themselves uh, than in the past. You know, with, you don't need necessarily a brick-and-mortar store. You don't, uh, you know, it's a very, very different kind of environment now. Are, are we in a time when... Um, there are more opportunities, better opportunities to freelance, or is it kind of a race economically downhill for people doing that? I think that's a great point and a great question uh, and and a great uh, observation that the email pointed out about the the benefits that can really accrue to people depending on who they are and what their skill sets are. My observation, trying to look at this as a as a historical phenomenon, is that you know the concept of working for yourself is so varied and so vast uh, that there are so many different types of ways to do it. It's very difficult to to generalize at all. As as the previous caller mentioned, you know, there's a very small number of extremely successful people, uh, but we don't hear about the thousands or tens of thousands of failures or people who are barely scraping by. Uh, and as your emailer pointed out, there's a lot of opportunities uh, for people to do things, opportunities that didn't exist in the past. Uh, and you know, if you have a skill set that can bring you three hundred dollars uh, an hour to freelance work on your computer, then that might well be a, a useful, a good use of your time. One of the things that has happened, you know, in the last fifteen or twenty years or so, is a, a dramatic increase in the number of people who uh, own businesses and, and declare their sort of income as as businesses, but who don't have any employees. There's a phenomenon called the non-employer business, which dwarfs employer businesses by a factor of about five. Uh, there's about 27 million non-employer companies, and that can be everything from freelancers to um, you know, lawyers who work for themselves or, or professionals of various kinds. And 
their motivations vary as well. Some people are out to conquer the world and make as much money as they can, but others are, like your the email implied, uh, much more interested in creating a, st a stable income stream for themselves and being much more in control of their time. There's a there's great evidence that there is a whole kind of group of people who approach self-employment, not in terms of you know traditional entrepreneurship as in bu building a big business, uh, building something they can sell for a ton of money, but as a way to uh, not have to work all that much. You know, if I can get, if I can mm -hmm. accomplish or earn as much as I need to in less than forty hours a week or on my own terms, then that's good enough for me. And so, as I said, I think there's just a tremendous range of of reasons that people do this uh, and and types of opportunities. To get to your question about how we as a society should view this, I think that's the way we should see this as a varied and widely uh, diffuse and diverse type of activity that's not universally good, universally bad. Um, but if people are getting into this for reasons that come out of uh, you know economic hardship or exploitation or it being a last worst option, that's where I worry that that we uh, that over glamorizing it might tend to uh, to to blind us to those problems. I'm struck, you know, by um, people that are in the the trades and building area, uh, home contracting and the like, and, you know, people that I'll have come over and, and do work on, on my house and um, talking with some of the owners of the companies, because here in Southern California, many of them are immigrants and they started out, maybe didn't even speak English and, you know, worked doing this work, really learned the trade or the craft and and then um, launched their own company and started employing. And it's fascinating to see this opportunity. And uh, I don't know if that's true in other parts of the country, but certainly something that I've seen here in Southern California. And you just think, you know, these are people very bright, very skilled. You wonder, gosh, you know, what other opportunity would there be had they not launched their own business providing, uh, providing that service? Ted and Locke Resen, it's good to have you with us your thoughts on entrepreneurialism? Yes, uh, 35 years freelance. Uh, number one, find a need and fill it. As soon as my skills are no longer relevant to the industry I'm servicing, my days are numbered. Uh, two, keep it simple. Um, keep your books simple. Uh, have, have good people skills. Um, network. Um, I didn't have any employees that kept the paperwork down. I hired subcontractors. Yeah, that's about it. All right, Ted, thanks very much. No, I appreciate it, talking about some of the tips uh, to make a, a successful business. We're at 866-893-5722. Uh, TJ in Atwater Village says, as an actor, we're all essentially independent contractors, but it also brings up the issue that we're the only major country that doesn't have health insurance. I think that would solve a lot of problems and spur innovation. We do have, of course, the Affordable Care Act with subsidized available health insurance. We don't have a national health plan, but TJ, I appreciate it very much. Um, Benjamin, your thoughts about uh, ways that, because you, you sort of hinted at this early on, that you think there's been a neglect of other things government could provide because of the out of entrepreneurialism. Well, I think that's right. I think one of the overarching themes of, of 
my book, is, which is, as I said, it's a history. It goes back to several decades and it charts how these ideas and the power of these ideals can be used by people from a variety of political perspectives. And health insurance is just one of them, and that makes a, a very important appearance uh, in some of the later chapters of my book, uh, because the the recent efforts, both in the 90s and in the failed effort under the Clinton administration and then the Affordable Care Act in the Obama administration, uh, faced stiff headwinds from people speaking on behalf of business owners, particularly small business owners, independent business owners, and people who worried that their uh, costs of doing business would increase uh, or some other for for other reasons that the uh, you know the imposition of, of government mandates or government uh, healthcare would would create problems for them. A very similar story takes place with the the minimum wage, uh, which would uh, probably you know serve to do keep many people in traditional jobs and not uh, create as much of an incentive for people to think they can make more elsewhere if labor labor uh, wages were were higher. Uh, and finally, you mentioned immigration a little while ago, and I think that's a really good example of this sort of very muddied uh, and complicated world in which, um, on one hand, as you point out, it's it's a wonderful opportunity for many people. Yeah. Uh, this is you know a very old story of immigrant groups, you know, people finding each other with a common language or a common national culture and tradition, and working together uh, and. But there's a flip side. I'm so sorry I have to break in, Ben, because we're out of time. But thank you, Professor, for joining us. I appreciate it so much. Benjamin C. Waterhouse, one day I'll work for myself. The dream and delusion that conquered America. Have a great day. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.